Well, if you remember anything from uh, your history class and the words of the Declaration of Independence, it might be this line. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote these words and he was asserting what he believed to be true about the nature of government, that it had an obligation and certain entitlements that it was to provide for its citizenship. He goes on and writes that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety. And here's the word again, happiness. Uh, again, asserting the role of government and its obligation uh, to maintain certain rights for the people that it leads. And within that, another obligation of those who are governed that in the event the government doesn't fulfill its obligations to either change that government or abolish that government, replacing it with a new form. Now, 94 years after the Declaration of Independence, 11 states wrote similar documents. They were called Ordinances of Secession, in which they withdrew from the Union. Now, unlike the Declaration of Independence, which went on to list the grievances that the colonies had against the English government and its king, most of these ordinances of secession did not list grievances, except for four of them. The most clear was from the state of Alabama. And they wrote this. Whereas the election of Abraham Lincoln and Hannibal Hamlin to the offices of President and Vice President of the United States of America by a sectional party, avowedly hostile to the domestic institutions and to the peace and security of the people of the state of Alabama, preceded by many and dangerous infractions of the Constitution of the United States, by many of the states and people of the northern section, is a political wrong of so insulting and menacing a character as to justify the people of the state of Alabama in the adoption of prompt and decided measures for their future peace and security. Therefore, be it declared and ordained by the people of the state of Alabama in convention assembled that the state of Alabama now withdraws and is hereby withdrawn from the union known as the United States of America. Eleven documents saying something similar as the Declaration of Independence. As you know, out of both documents, there was war. For the South, it was the great cause against northern aggression. But here's the question that I pose to you this morning. Not to take a political stance on, on any of this, but to just ask this question. What is the difference between revolution and rebellion? If you are under an authority that you deem is not worthy, that needs to be thrown off, what's the difference between a rebellion and a revolution? One answer might be, in its result, that if you are successful, it's revolution. If you are not, history will call it rebellion. 
Genesis chapter three, we see the first human rejection of authority. And we see there that there's this voice that speaks to our first parents and says, there is a right that you have that is being withheld from you. And because this right is being withheld from you, you are justified in disobeying the authority you're under. We read this, Genesis chapter three, one through six. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Revolution or rebellion? The end result, life, death. Liberty? Slavery. Happiness? No. Despair. It's known by its result. It's a rebellion. The rebellion of humanity against the authority of God. Here's God, the authority, and here's humanity, our first parents, and along comes the, the Satan, Satan, the liar, taking the form of a serpent to, to convince our first parents to believe the lie. You are entitled to something, and it is being withheld from you overthrow the authority that you have. When we take a look at creation and we see God created everything, the whole universe, with words. Spoke it all into existence. But with humanity, he took dust from the ground and he formed it into man and he breathed into him. Does God want us to live? Does he want us to have life? When we, when we look at the, the creation accounts and we see that he takes man and he says, look at all that I've made. Look at all these creatures that I've created. I want you to name them. All of this earth, it's subject to you. Turn this into a garden. When, when God gives man that responsibility, isn't God saying, I want you to have liberty? When God says, man, here's woman, woman, here's man, be fruitful, multiply, isn't God saying, pursue happiness? That's the truth of what God's intent has been for us, and yet we believe the lie that God was not good. And rebellion has become the state of our existence. The good news is, is God immediately springs into redemptive action. In verse 15, Genesis 3, he speaks to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's a picture of a descendant that will come who will destroy the enemy of God and in the process be wounded. It's the first picture of the gospel. And the, and the redemptive story takes off from there. God calls Noah and he calls Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And these descendants grow up in, in, uh, in, in, in Egypt in slavery and they cry out to God for deliverance and God sends them a savior. And, and Moses comes and brings them out of slavery in Egypt and into the wilderness where God takes a saved, a saved people and he makes them into his people. And God says to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. 
You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And here's one of the first pictures of holiness that we see. It's this idea of being set apart. God is saying, I'm setting you apart from the other nations. I took you out of Egypt. You're not gonna be like the Egyptians. And I'm going to send you into the land of Canaan. You're gonna drive those people out before you, but you're not gonna be like the Canaanites. You're to be set apart. You are to be different than they are. But to be holy means more than to be set apart from. It also means to be set apart to. He set these people apart for him, to himself. The people of God have always meant to be a countercultural kind of people. We are meant to be different than the world around us. From an outsider's perspective in, in numbers, an individual sees the Israelites moving through the wilderness. He says, from, for from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. A man named Balaam sees uh, these people and says, these people are different. They're not like anybody else. God called them to be different, and they struggled to be different. Unfortunately, as a psalmist would lament, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They didn't want to be different. They wanted to assimilate. They wanted to be like the, the nations around them. And that's why they called for a king in 1 Samuel 8. No, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. We want to assimilate. We want to be absorbed. We, we want to, to be like everybody else. And God would raise up people and prophets and send them to, to, to his people to call them to be different. Uh, Jeremiah says, learn not the ways of the nations. But they never did. They never obeyed. They never withdrew. They, they never set themselves apart and set themselves to God fully. They allow themselves to be assimilated to the point where God says enough and he allows other nations to come in and carry them off and disperse them. But God, at just the right moment in time, decides not to send a prophet but to send himself, his son born into our world. And the opening pages of the New Testament, he comes. And he comes to live this life and he begins to minister. He begins to preach. This morning, we begin a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're gonna spend this next year looking at Matthew chapters five through seven in the teaching of Jesus on this, this hillside and casting this vision for his people to follow about what life is supposed to look like in relationship to him. The Sermon on the Mount is this, this, this year-long study that we get to begin this morning. But I want to start with, with something that John Stott says about the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, the Sermon on the Mount is the best-known teaching of Jesus, but arguably the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. Uh, you might be here this morning, and this might be the very first time you've ever set foot in a church gathering like this, and I'm willing to bet you know parts of the Sermon on the Mount have heard of it before. This is the, the, the most heard message of Jesus, parts of it are. And yet, it's the least understood and definitely the least obeyed. Sermon on the Mount is a difficult path 
to climb. But it's a beautiful path. Um, we're going to spend uh, our, our, our time together this morning um, looking at uh, the, the, the vision that Jesus casts throughout the Sermon 3. And there's three elements to, to this vision that he's casting um, that's going to guide our, our study through uh, the Sermon on the Mount throughout this uh, this year, and 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 so uh, the the question to sort of ponder as we we begin here is because this is an arduous climb, I want to to show you what the climb's going to look like and give you the opportunity to decide if you actually want to climb it with us. Okay, um, what is the Sermon on the Mount? We're going to start with talking about the first element of it, the the first vision that 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 we see in this, and that the Sermon on the Mount is a countercultural vision for what life is supposed to look like. Just as God said of his people, you're not gonna be like the Egyptians. You're gonna be set apart from them. You're not gonna be like the Canaanites. You're gonna be different from them. This is a countercultural vision. God's people are meant to live and look and act and think and feel differently. Uh, two ways we see that in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, we're gonna see that. One of the ways we see that is Jesus makes this statement, do not be like them. He says that. Uh, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, do not be like them. And he's got two groups of people in mind when he says that. The first group of people is the irreligious people or the Gentiles or the Greek people. And, and he, he points to them and he says, uh, these are a people who only love people that love them. And here's a group of people that when they pray, it's just full of babbling nonsense. Or here's a people that, uh, that, that, that they're so concerned with what they're going to eat or what they're going to drink or what they're going to wear that they, 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 they don't uh, have, have any room in their lives for anything else. They, they live so fearfully. And, and, and Jesus says over and over again, don't be like them. Instead, love people that hate you and reject you. It, instead of, of, of babbling prayers, you're going to pray to a heavenly father. He says that when, when it comes to, uh, to, to what you're going to live for, you're going to live for putting a kingdom first above your own. It's, it's going to be more important than your, even your own material needs. Don't be like them. He points to, to the irreligious folks, sort of the anti-God sort of folks, but then he, he points to the religious folks. He points to the false God folks. He points to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he also says, don't be like them. Because the scribes, they twist scripture, and the Pharisees, they're, they're such hypocrites, they lay rules on people that they themselves don't follow. Instead, don't be like them, but, but take on a, a different kind of moral ethic that is not just expressed in what you do, but also in what you think, what you want to do. Be so completely changed that, it, that, that this change, it, it covers not just your external actions, but, but your internal motives. Don't be like them. And once again, God through, through his son Jesus is saying, be different. Be set apart. You're not to be like them. And so the first thing he says is don't be like them. The second thing he says though is, and this is most clearly seen at the end of chapter five where Jesus says, be like your heavenly father. He says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So first it's stated negatively, don't be like them. Then it's stated positively, be like him. Seems a little difficult, don't you think? Be like your heavenly father. But again, it's, it's about being set apart from and being set apart to. This is a countercultural picture that Jesus is presenting to us. This is a life that is meant to be completely different. The second vision that is cast here is 
to understand that what Jesus is talking about is a now and not yet reality in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. A now and not yet reality. Um, we see this in terms of context. So we're gonna take a, a moment here. We're gonna talk about the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're gonna see from sort of a macro perspective and then zoom into a micro perspective. Some 30,000 foot view of the Sermon on the Mount. And the, the first thing we'll say about context. The Sermon on the Mount is found in scripture. It's found in the Bible. How many of you knew that? Pretty obvious, right? It's found in the Bible. It's found in scripture. And, and we say that to point out this, where it's not found. See, the Sermon on the Mount is not found in the teachings of the Buddha. A lot of people, they look at Jesus and they look at Buddha and they say, well, there's so many sort of things that connect the two of them. They're both very altruistic and they both talk about you know, giving uh, more than receiving and, and love is, 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 is better than, than, than hate. And, and like Jesus and Buddha, they're like kindred spirits. They're the same and they're not. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is found in the Bible and the Bible is pointing towards a holy, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, all-powerful God, a being with a mind, with thought and feeling and intent. The Buddha would teach his followers that truth comes from some sort of universal program or some sort of uh, universal ethic, but not a mind, not a person, not a being. Sermon of the Mount is found in Scripture, because it points to God. The Sermon on the Mount is, is not found in Greek thought. Uh, about 300 years before Jesus, there was a man named Epicurus, and he, he taught that life was, was about the pursuit of happiness and the avoidance of pain. Um, that's where the language for the Declaration of Independence actually comes from. Thomas Jefferson was an Epicurean. To be clear, he was not a a theist, he was a deist, what we would call more of an agnostic than a Christian. Thomas Jefferson uh, took a Bible and took a knife and cut out scripture that he liked and pasted it into a notebook and rejected everything else. Anything that did not fit his natural views of the world, anything miraculous, anything uh, divine, anything supernatural, he rejected. But the Sermon on the Mount, he cut and he pasted in this book. You can buy a copy of it. It's called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. But what he did was he looked at Jesus and he, see, he didn't see a good God. He saw a good teacher. Because he took the Sermon on the Mount out of Scripture, out of its biblical context. And if you take it out of its biblical context, you will not understand the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's not found, the Sermon on the Mount. It's not found in Eastern thought. It's not found in Greek thought. It's, it's not uh, found in, in, in other places like uh, uh, Muhammad. Uh, his last sermon preached, a lot of people make connections between uh, the ministry of Jesus and, and the last sermon that Muhammad preached in which um, he talked about um, the, 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 the need to, uh, uh, for, for racial justice. Um, he actually touched on the need to elevate the role of women. But the, the main difference between Muhammad and Jesus is seen in, in one thing, that Muhammad believed he was sent of God to kill God's enemies. Jesus was sent of the Father to die for his enemies. Huge difference. You don't see this in Eastern thought or Greek thought or, or, or Western thought or, or the late modern thought. You don't see this in, in Gandhi. Gandhi uh, actually called himself a Sermon on the Mount Christian. Um, he rejected all of the Old Testament, thought it was boring. Uh, 
Um, When it comes to the New Testament, specifically Paul, he said this, I draw a great distinction between the Sermon on the Mount and the letters of Paul. They are a graft on Christ's teaching, his own gloss apart from Christ's own experience. Gandhi would reach out, he would take hold of the words of the Sermon on the Mount but reject everything else. You see, what, what happens when you remove the Sermon on the Mount from Scripture is that you remove the Sermon on the Mount from, of a, from a divine voice. And you make it a human voice. And you make it human wisdom and a human ethic. And it gives no life. You, you, you can't take the Sermon on the Mount out of Scripture. The, the second... Uh, to, to zoom in a little bit in terms of context, the, the, the other thing to understand, we find the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament. So uh, there are some people who look at the, the, the sermon and they think that Jesus was speaking to his disciples um, and, and the subject matter of which he was speaking, it was for a certain specific time period and it's, uh, it, it's no longer relevant. That when Jesus said he comes to fulfill the law with his death, his resurrection, and ascension, that law is fulfilled, and anything that he says about ethics or the law, that's now annulled. It's past. It doesn't matter anymore. It's irrelevant. And if that were the case, then why would the the gospel writer include this in a teaching to his disciples after this all happened? We need to understand it is relevant. See, the, the whole, all of Scripture, the Old Testament points to the redemption that's coming and the salvation that's needed. In the opening pages of the New Testament, that redemption comes, and then the rest of the, Old Test- or the New Testament is about how you live in light of that. Thirdly, in terms of context, it's found in the Gospels. It's, it's, it's found in, in the testimony of who Jesus is in his life and, and, and his death and his resurrection. It, it, it's a testimony of Jesus. It's important to understand the Sermon on the Mount, it could not have been preached by Peter. It couldn't have been preached by Paul. It couldn't have been preached by James. It couldn't have been preached by anybody else. It had to be preached by Jesus. This is Jesus' sermon. It's pointing to him. Lastly, in terms of context, it's found in the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew's theme is all about the kingdom of God that's at hand. The kingdom of God that is here and is coming. It's now and it's coming. The kingdom of God is is a huge part of our understanding of what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And um, to to go a little bit deeper on on that point, um, when it comes to what is the the characteristics or the distinctives of the kingdom that we're going to be looking at over the course of of this this year, uh, one thing to understand about the kingdom of God is that it's dynamic rather than spatial. When we talk about the kingdom uh, kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, we're not talking about a kingdom that has a border. Uh, that has landmass, that has um, uh, walls around it, that, that, that is a, a, a physical geographical space. We're talking about something that's dynamic. Secondly, when we're talking about the kingdom of Mount or kingdom of heaven, we understand that God is sovereign over everything. God is sovereign over all of His creation, physical and spiritual. However, there is a portion of that uh, the reality that remains unsubmitted to Him. There are people who do not recognize the authority of God over them and living unsubmitted lives to them. When we talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, we're talking about the kingdom within the kingdom. We're talking about uh, a reality where there's a king and there's a people, and the king reigns and the people submit to that reign and rule. We're talking about a people who have acknowledged this king, have embraced what this king has done for them on their behalf. They find themselves in Christ and therefore find themselves saved. Saved. 
This saving reality is a present and future reality. That's the third aspect of the third characteristic of the kingdom of God, is that when we talk about this, we're talking about saving in the sense of the kingdom as present and future. Um, We talk about this a lot, that when it comes to what Jesus did for us at the cross, we are saved from the punishment of sin. That Jesus, he takes your sin. He takes my sin. He takes our guilt, everything that we've done against one another and against him. He puts it on himself. He dies. The wrath of God comes on him. We are therefore saved from the punishment of sin. The punishment we deserve was put on him. Saved from the punishment of sin. Additionally, when he sends the Holy Spirit to live in us, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, we now have power over sin. We're saved from the power of sin. But thirdly, what we wait for is salvation from the presence of sin. Sin is in the world around us. It's in our culture. It's in our relationships. It's in us. And one day Christ will return, remove the presence of sin from our reality. So this understanding that we're saved now and we're saved to come. Um, Peter talks about this, that we were saved past. He talks about things like predestination, but he also talks about how we're saved current. We're being held by the power of the Spirit and we will be saved future. When we talk about the kingdom of heaven, there's this this dynamic rather than spatial reality. We talk about uh, the the fact that um, it is is coming and growing and uh, and the fact that um, uh, it's a a reality in which there's a king and we submit to that that king. So Jesus is casting a vision. And the first part of that vision, it's countercultural. The life that he's showing us runs counter to the world that we live in. But secondly, it's, it's a vision of a kingdom that's coming, and yet now. Third part of this vision, though, is that it is a, a flourishing and fulfilling reality that he's pointing us to. A flourishing, fulfilling reality. Um, in the, the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to encounter two really important words. The first is makairos. Um, when we get into the Beatitudes, that's the section we start next week, Um, The Beatitudes say, blessed are those who. Now that word blessed there, that's the English word, but the the Greek word that's translated from is makairos, and the word blessed doesn't do it justice. Oftentimes, um, there there are words that that get translated into English and and they lose a lot of their meaning. There are actually two Greek words that we translate as blessed. Uh, One is eulogio, and probably didn't pronounce that right. Uh, but we see this in the New Testament, like um, Luke chapter 1, verse 42, uh, where Elizabeth, she uh, has, uh, she's, she's the mother of John the Baptist. And Mary comes to her, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth says to Mary, blessed are you among women. Blessed are you. In other words, God is blessing you. God is gifting you. Um, God is, is giving you this hope, that this, this beautiful thing that's happening to you. This is a result of, of God uh, showing you favor. Okay? Um, that's, that's not makairos, that's eulogio. When we see makairos, uh, one helpful way of understanding it is when we look at the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But Psalm 1 is helpful, one, uh, 1 through 3. It says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. This is a different picture of blessing. 
It's not a blessing that comes from God from the outside. Rather, it's a blessing uh, from someone who chooses to follow the will of God, who chooses to immerse themselves in God's desire for their lives. It's a picture of a person who, like a tree, has roots shooting down and is planted well. It's a picture of flourishing, of thriving. It's a picture of a tree that grows and produces fruit. When we read the, these Beatitudes, we're going to see this word, makairos, over and over again, this picture of flourishing. The Sermon on the Mount is a vision where Jesus is saying, this is what life is supposed to look like, and it is beautiful, and it's productive, and it's healthy, and it's flourishing. The second really important word is teleos. When we see Jesus saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, perfect, that's teleos. And again, perfect doesn't do it justice. When we hear the word perfect, we think of some sort of maybe absolute moral purity, but it means so much more than that. Uh, we see teleos throughout the New Testament. One powerful place we see it is on the cross. Jesus, before he gives up uh, his spirit, says, it is finished. Finished. That's the, from the Greek word teleos. It means complete. It means the work is done. It means this redemptive plan of God has been met in Christ and he's lived the life and he's paid this penalty and he's gone to the cross and the work of redemption, it's, it's done. It's, it's over. Like there's nothing you can add to it. It's complete, lacking nothing. It's fulfilled. That's, that's teleos. Uh, in the New Testament where we see um, the, the, the New Testament writers talking about maturity, about growing up spiritually, about becoming a spiritual man or a spiritual woman of God. That word for maturity, that's teleos. It's this picture of, of, of becoming the, the, the person God has intended for you to become. It, it, we see it in, in places like where, where unity is talked about and how we who have different gifts come together and, and we're supposed to, in the church, connect with one another and grow up into the fullness and the stature of Christ. Again, that word is used in there. It's about becoming what we were meant to become. When Jesus casts this vision of, of what life in his kingdom is meant to look like, it is a vision for human flourishing and human fulfillment, and it's now and it's coming, and it's a countercultural way of living. But it's difficult. When we encounter the, the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see some things in here that are really hard. I mean, I've already mentioned, be perfect like your Heavenly Father is perfect. Whatever perfect means to try to be like the Heavenly Father? That seems like a difficult mountain to climb, don't you think? Jesus is going to talk about ethics, and he's going to say, you thought this was murder? No, no, no. Murder comes down to what, what, what the intentions are of in your heart. You hate somebody. You, you thought adultery was, was acting in a physical... No, 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 no. It goes way beyond that. It, it, it goes to the desire of your heart. If you even desire somebody in the wrong way. He's going to talk about how you might be treated by somebody and how you're supposed to respond when somebody hates you and hurts you and takes from you. The, the, the ethic, the, the vision of the Sermon on the Mount, it, it is a difficult mountain to climb. And some people look at it and say it's not possible. Uh, D.A. Carson he asks uh, the question, are the standards of the Sermon on the Mount attainable? Or must we be content with admiring them wistfully from a distance? Are we supposed to look at the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus says, and Jesus says, this is the ideal life, and you'll never have it. 
No, the, the brief answer is that uh, we, we are and we will be able to attain what's written here. Let's look at the sermon. Turn with me, Matthew 5, 1 through 2. It's going to be up there. We're going to look at it really briefly. We're just dipping our toes in this morning, okay? It says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, what's happening here is literally and figuratively, Jesus is getting away. He's setting himself apart. He's beginning to climb the mountain. Okay? What's just happened at the end of chapter 4, it says, And a great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus is surrounded by a bunch of people. And Jesus is getting away. The crowds will follow him, but Jesus, uh, his attention will be on his disciples. He's going to be looking at his disciples. He's going to be talking to his disciples. It's important to understand that the Sermon of the Mount is directed at followers of Jesus. This is for followers of Jesus to be heard and understood. Um, in answering the, the question, uh, Carson goes on, the standards of the sermon are neither readily attainable by everyone nor totally unattainable by anyone. To put them beyond anybody's reach is to ignore the purpose of Christ's sermon. To put them within everybody's reach is to ignore the reality of human sin. They are attainable, all right, but only by those who have experienced the new birth which Jesus told Nicodemus was the essential condition of seeing and entering God's kingdom. Only in Christ can you climb this mountain. You can't climb the Sermon on the Mount without Jesus. And people like Jefferson and Gandhi tried, but they tried to do it without Jesus, and they were unsuccessful. You can only climb this mountain with Jesus, only by his life, only by his death, only by his resurrection, only by his power and might can you attain what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. This countercultural kingdom now yet to come sort of reality only by Jesus' power can we go it. And it's a difficult climb. As, as Stott said, a lot of people have heard this sermon. A lot of people like this sermon. Fewer people understand the sermon and even fewer people yet obey it. Because what the sermon will require in terms of obedience is saying no. It's saying no to the world around us. It's saying no to the enemy. It's saying no to the culture. It's saying no to our own flesh. You see, the first throw-off of authority was rebellion in the garden. Christ has overcome that rebellion and redeemed us from it. But we still live in the presence of sin and in a reality where there is an enemy and there is a culture and there is our own flesh fighting against us, trying to hold us in its control. And what we see in the Sermon of the Mount is a throwing off of that. It is, it is a revolution. It is resistance. It is fighting the power. It is taking a stand. It is saying no. In the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see how Jesus responds and counters and confronts the world. Where the world will tell us to get rich, Jesus is going to say, embrace poverty. A world that tells us to party, Christ's response is mourn. A world that tells us that there are no wrong ways to God, Jesus will say, the way is narrow and few 
find it. In a world that says to cancel those who don't agree with you and to vilify others, Jesus says, love your enemies. In a world that says or tells you to store up things for your earthly comfort, Jesus says to invest in things that are eternal and not temporal. In a world that fills you with worry, Jesus says to trust and rest in a heavenly father. The way of Jesus is to say no. The difficulty of the Sermon on the Mount will not be in understanding so much as it will be in saying no. Because once again, as God is calling his people, be different. Be different. Far too often, we as Christians have not looked any different than the rest of the world. Alongside the Sermon on the Mount this year, we're going to be looking at spiritual disciplines. Nine in total. We actually already did one the week after Thanksgiving. The discipline of silence and solitude. But over the course of this year, we're going to look at the practices of Jesus, how Jesus actually lived his life, the things that he did that actually enabled him to live the life that he lived. And again, through these practices, it is an opportunity for us to revolt. It is an opportunity for us to resist. It's an opportunity for us to say no, especially to our own flesh. Because our own flesh will say, your identity is found in much labor and work. Therefore, keep going. And Jesus will say through these practices, no, your identity is found in what I've done for you. Rest. We're going to look at prayer and we're going to look at uh, community and we're going to uh, look at uh, at, at, at uh, Gratuity and being gracious to one another through, uh, through being generous. But through all of these practices, we're, we're, we're loudly proclaiming no to the world around us. This is a difficult mountain to climb, but it's worth it. And, and I want to invite you to join us with it, but I want you to, to, to know from the outset what's going to be involved. Uh, I look forward to next week. I hope you've got a good taste for where we're headed. Um, I'm going to close us in prayer and we're going to return to worship. Heavenly Father, thank you for this sermon. Thank you for the one who preached it. Lord Jesus, thank you for this vision that you've cast. Thank you for your desire to be it, uh, with us in relationship, but the kind of relationship that thrives and flourishes and grows and makes a difference. Father, I pray by the power of your spirit we would... Um, follow you up this mountain. Um, that we would get to experience and taste what life in you is, is like in all of its beauty. Uh, being fully aware that it will not be free of pain and not be free of difficulty, but it will be a life that matters. In Jesus' name we pray.